0: Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Barood, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Rachel braun the head of Spark Solutions for Growth, and Dan Seewald, the
1: CEO of Deliberate
0: Innovation Consultancy.
1: I have spent my career building brands and businesses, both for myself and other people. And I started my career at J&J. And I mentioned that because those relationships and those skills were so fundamental to everything that I've done since. And so, so much of my work every year, I can trace back to something I learned or someone I met when I was at J&J and wound up working for them as an employee or service provider for 20 years. Um, My work is really focused on driving top line growth. So, driving a transaction to have people buy what you're selling, whether it's a consumer, a patient, a healthcare practitioner, an investor, um, an, an insurance company. And it's really about what can you say? What can you offer? What is the packaging total packaging, literal and figurative, around what you're selling that will drive a transaction. So is it better understanding of insights? Is it new messaging? Is it an innovation process? Is it new products? Is it um, line extension? Is it geographic expansion? So on and so forth, all focused on that with a particular emphasis on women's businesses, as I say, from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes. Um, For the past 14 years or so, I've been full on in women's sexual and reproductive health which I call menstruation to menopause, ran a company um, in the space, have stayed in it all this time after exiting from that company. I've written a book in the space and I just launched a podcast called Business of the V. So I am all in all the time about the business of women's sexual and reproductive health and what you need to do and steps you need to take and actually working with companies to do that to help them figure out how to grow.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. Dan, go ahead.
2: That is a tough act to follow because I'm super fascinated to hear more from Rachel. A um, few words about me. Um, Dan, uh, I am the founder of a company called Deliberate Innovation. It's a corporate innovation advisory firm. We work with companies to help them build culture, capabilities, and problem solve um, to consult. That, that's kind of what we do. We work across the Fortune 500 highly regulated traditional companies that kind of struggled to get out of their own way. And way back when, in the old days, uh, I was the head of worldwide innovation for Pfizer, where we built a program that was trying to help incubate new ventures, new offers, and uh, kind of took that, what, what worked, as well as what didn't, and launched deliberate innovation a number of years ago. And one uh, sort of interesting adjacency to this is while there are a lot of innovation consulting firms that say, you should do this, or here's a great idea, but we're not going to do it. One of my, uh, I wouldn't call it a side hustle as much as it is a almost a second job, is myself and a co-founder have founded a business in the space of women's health, and specifically health and hygiene. So it's exciting to have Rachel on, um, who's been in these shoes and walked a mile in these shoes. We've been on the product development journey for a few years. And when it comes to developing new products, launching new things, um, we try to take our own advice that we give to other companies. We live it so we don't just talk it. So that's kind of the quick story on me.
1: Thanks, Dan. I just want to add something based on what Dan said is I spend a lot of time in the in-between. So Dan's with the Fortune 500 companies, which I do a lot of work with as well as venture backed. And because of uh, initiatives like Dan, when you were at Pfizer, there were these ideas and these concepts were few and far between. Um, Now there's a real awareness, at least from my perspective on the part of corporations who say we can't build it fast enough to make a difference. So there's a lot of that partnership happening at a much more accelerated pace, which I think is exciting.
0: And that's a great segue into, you know, the first sort of question I want to ask about is, you know, how has new product development changed over the years in the female healthcare space? So you can, why don't you continue that um, thought, uh, Rachel, and then we'll get Dan's perspective uh, coming from Pfizer and now on
1: his own. There are so that I could spend six hours answering that question and don't worry for the people listening. I I probably have about 60 seconds. Um, Basically over the past 10 years, Maybe longer, we've seen this explosion in understanding and interest around women's health. Historically, people have just thought about uh, reproductive health. So, whether it's fertility, infertility, pregnancy, but now there's so much money and so many businesses and hundreds of founders who are looking at the entire spectrum. One of the things that COVID has done in a positive way, if that's a, a sentence you can put together, is when we saw how differently men and women responded to COVID, there was an increasing awareness that our biology is different. And so the narrative in women's health is much more around things that affect women differently, like COVID or heart disease and anything else, predominantly like breast cancer, or primarily like you need to have an an ovaries and a uterus to have those experiences. So this idea Of looking at her as a total person in my opinion is being driven by so many of the entrepreneurs in this space who are filling the void you know back in the day you could point to one or two pharmaceutical companies who were about women's health now it's a little bit difficult to look at any company and say they have the range of women's needs and so many of the things that women experience because of their hormones during menstruation are related to what they experience from their hormones in menopause. So there's a lot more conversation connecting her and understanding how complex her systems are.
0: Great. Great. Dan, go ahead.
2: Well, I'll just build on your, your point, Rachel. The One of the things that that I found over the past several years working in this space and in the product development of women's health is that Historically, there really weren't that many entrepreneurs, not enough funding. The VCs that are out there were kind of like, I don't get this, so I don't care. And that's all shifted. Uh, The amount of investment capital has grown dramatically, almost logarithmically. And, um, And it's also emboldening a lot of women who are in this space who in the past might not have been entrepreneurs. becoming would-be and real entrepreneurs now there's the funding and there's also a lot more awareness about the unmet needs that were silent we work in a space around an unmet need that women would not talk about it think about like viagra you know in the in the early days men didn't talk about erectile dysfunction they still don't talk that much about it but there's more of an open dialogue and I think that this has allowed for women to be able to have more open, transparent conversations, which means when there's more dialogue, more openness, people start to reveal the pain points, the jobs to be done. And that's where the opportunities start to blossom. So I think, James, from a, from a product development standpoint, there's a lot more um, flashpoints, a lot more hotspots to d- develop from. And because there's capital, people are being emboldened. They feel like, why shouldn't I go out and do this? And they I should. Mean-
1: Jim, I don't. Do you want? I don't know if you want to go to another question, or I can build on what Dan I, said. I want you to build
0: on it because you're one of the few female entrepreneurs in this space. Year many years ago, so you've seen sort of this transformation. Talk more about that.
1: So you know, I would say yes, it's grown fantastically. Um, when you still look at the percentage of funding that goes to female founders, we don't have to belabor those, but it's you know some single digit. Um, when you look at the subset of that to female sexual and reproductive health, it gets even smaller. So using your Viagra example, I had many conversations where I would walk. I was raising money for the product that I, um, the company I was running at the time, which was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts clinically proven to increase arousal, desire and satisfaction. It's a mouthful. And we would go in and say 41% of women have sexual concerns and difficulties compared to the 31% of men who have erectile dysfunction. You know, and I would, I always focus on these are big businesses with big opportunities. If you come up with a solution and we heard um, many times things like, well, my wife never mentioned that. Not surprising. Um, One of the things that happens in a funding situation and much less so is that in women's health, if the people in the room and, you know, still the majority of them are, are white men, if they can't imagine it. Then they think it 's a niche, so yes. if I walk into an investment setting and there 's a guy in the room whose sister, wife, friend, daughter has struggled with infertility, then a fertility business looks real to them. but if they 've never had a discussion about you know dysmenorrhea or you know vaginal dryness, then in addition to being uncomfortable it's hard they 're hard pressed to believe that it 's a real thing
2: absolutely I, 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 if you don 't mind me building also Jim. On this, I, I think that's you hit the nail on the head. And there, there are a lot of people who, who work in this space. And well, if you think product development in general, one of the biggest challenges I have we work with, whether it's an architectural glass company or it's an HVAC company or it's a pharmaceutical company. Um, the, the challenge is, is that people will struggle to empathize and actually step outside of their day jobs and their experience and to inhabit somebody else's literally walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. And I think that's the point that you're, you're kind of landing on. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges is that working in a space where our customer who we're building for is not me, it's not my business partner. So we need to listen. We need to ask a lot of questions. We have to empathize um, when it's difficult to have empathy when you can't experience that. So that means you need to be extra, double, triple the amount of insight Curiosity and surround yourself of a con- constellation of people who have this experience, and I think in the
1: past, Dan, where have you been all my life? <laughs> you weren't in the investment rooms I walked into.
2: Well, I think that's that is one of the challenges. And we, by the way, we are still seeing that when we've talked with some investors who have said exactly the words that you just said before, Rachel. Which is, is that really a problem? And you know, make a joke of it. And you know, I, we have to be sort of like the guardians of of sobriety and say, yeah, it is a real problem. Maybe you should talk to your wife. Maybe you haven't had that conversation. And, and not to be so you know, high and mighty, but you know, I, admittedly our product was spawned by a conversation my wife and I had that we had never had in over 15 years as a husband and wife. And it took actually saying, tell me more. I'm really interested to know more and caring. And I think that is a secret for product development. People don't wanna hear you have to give a darn. You have to care and you have to be involved. That's, it comes back to that. If you don't care, you're building widgets for reproduction, just trying to produce stuff to sell. And that's part of the business, but you got to give a crap and that's can't minimize. You can't get away from that.
0: Well, well, speaking of giving a crap, I mean, we talk about innovation (laughs) at large companies and as Rachel and Dan, you both mentioned how things have changed. There's also that collaboration with smaller companies. So, so talk about sort of how innovation, um, how robust it is now, and historically at large companies, and how that's changing, and how small companies are collaborating more.
2: You want to you want to do this as a toss up? I'll I'll take the first stab, if you like the quick quick answer. That is, more companies across the board understand what design design thinking, creative problem solving is. Um, there was. A, I don't want to use the word fad. There was a trend over the past decade where companies like my own employer Pfizer, um, invested heavily in building culture and capabilities. And that's kind of quieted a, a little bit And what where companies are kind of leaning in towards now is recognizing you may not have all the creative firepower in-house. Um, and there are there is probably undoubtedly, Creative, great creative firepower in your organization. You have to be able to incentivize, find them, give them permission, create trust and safety. All that matters. But they're starting more and more to look outside, not just for business development of like, oh, I'll buy you a company, I'll bring you it in. It's more about creative collaboration and recognizing that there are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that they can tap into and, and start to collaborate more with. And open the kimono be transparent, invite them in to work with you. I see a lot more, and I guess a specific proof point of that, Jim, is that in the past, if I'd run a workshop with a large company and we suggested, let's invite some external wildcards or innovators with adjacent relationships to your problem. More times than not, people will say, nah, nah, there's confidentiality issues or our technology is proprietary, we, we don't wanna discuss. The majority of people say, yes, please, invite them in. We want somebody who was an army ranger. We want an auto mechanic. We want somebody who's an expert in, in femtech and healthcare to come in to look at our problem differently. That openness is, a, I don't know if COVID has helped open some of that. It was there before, but I see it actually with even greater momentum now that people are open to externalizing, bringing some of those small players because there's creativity everywhere. It's a question of identifying it and not just kind of sticking to your knitting inside your shop or your company.
0: Dan, let me just dive into that for a second. Sure. Everything virtual, how has that aspect helped or hindered this sort of progress that you see going on?
2: It's a double-edged sword. I'll give you both sides of it. What, What I love about virtual is that we can do what we're doing right now. I mean, we're all kind of located in similar-ish areas, so we could have done it in person. But if I was in Dubai, you could be doing this, a workshop, a training, an event, and bring in the right people, the best minds, and do it so efficiently. And this is actually not an unengaging, environment right through zoom or other collaborative platforms you can make it super engaging if you design the right way so it's opened up so much more in terms of access of people and ideas that has been a wellspring the the flip side which everybody knows is that there can be virtual burnout Um, staring at a camera you know pin versus me looking you guys in the eye or the, the group that's listening in here right now we lose that, and as human beings, we feed off of each other's energy, our body temperature. There's, there's very strong biological signals that we give off in a room that you lose when you're virtual. And that's, obvi- that's an obvious one, but um, I think that where we're heading, I know you didn't ask this, but I'll, I'll propose this anyway, where we're heading is truly a hybrid approach. We're doing more and more of this as people are getting comfortable with the circumstances that we're in where we are doing kind of partial in-person, partial hybrid. And that means that we might have technology. Some people are not there, other people are. So you have to design in a really smart way to get everybody involved. And you could still get some of the in-person contact, but you know, you could get people from Dubai, you can get people from other places, so you can get the best of both. We are still learning that. We are still getting comfortable with it. I think that COVID, much like how... The Marshall Plan during post-World War II. I know it's maybe a strange analogy but you know what you saw was Japan and Germany actually really flourished after World War II because all the traditional institutions that were there before were destroyed. They had to rebuild them from scratch. COVID has actually disrupted in many ways institutions that we trust relied on, in-person meetings, going to the office. Those things have changed irrevocably And people wanna go back to them, like Jamie Dimon from JPM. But most people have said, it's a different world, guys. We We gotta think and act differently. So I think things have changed. And I do think that virtual has brought on an onslaught of possibility that people ignored before.
0: Yeah, that, that's a neat analogy. Thank you, Dan. Go ahead, Rachel.
1: So, so much to comment on you. You covered a, a lot of ground. So I'll, I'll start with the technology and having meetings. I'll give a real-time example. I'm running an innovation meeting this afternoon um, for a company uh, with, you know, 30 people on the phone. We've been working with this company for over a year, never laid eyes on them in person. Um, and you really have to figure out how to use these tools to your advantage, so there's all kinds of additional technology you can use there are whiteboard technology. So you can simulate, um, everybody being in the room. Um, you have to, keep the level of energy up. I'm always a big fan of a very strategic idea, which is making sure people have sugar next to them, candy and, and cookies to make sure that in the mid-afternoon they don't lose their energy. So it works for some people, it works for others. I don't know, Dan, if you've had this experience. I used to d- um, divide my clients in my head of those who do good phone and those who don't. There were certain clients that I had to be sitting in front of them to have their attention. And it's the same thing here. Um, there, I've done dozens of large meetings that would have taken months to coordinate online. I've done online focus groups. You, you have to, if you're the facilitator, you have to figure out how to make it work and not spend the first 10 minutes. I can't hear you. You're on mute. You know, all those things. Going back to the initial question, which was around large companies and innovation, I think a number of things have happened. I, th- I think that traditional companies have seen other brands make inroads in their categories. And I think menstrual care is a good example. Um, you know, an innovative company came up with period underwear. Um, and a number of innovative companies came up with tampons made of different, better materials and subscription-based direct delivery to your home. So part of it is seeing that, especially for the younger audiences, so many of these new businesses speak to an audience that a traditional large, entrenched bricks and mortar food, drug, and mass distribution um, company doesn't get. So I think that's one, they've seen competitive. Um, they've put their money where their mouth is and I think people follow the money. So when Proctor buys This Is L, which is um, uh, was a direct-to-delivery um, menstrual product brand and they bring it into Target, that says something. When you see the company Honeypot, Highlighted in a Target ad, which is highlighting a a woman of color and a female health business, and her company goes through the roof, people notice that. And then the, the last piece is, and we've worked in innovation for so long, we kept doing the same processes. We kept trying to teach them how to do it. And ultimately, if you're doing innovation right, in my opinion, as a consultant, you make yourself obsolete so that the culture can continue to have not just the spirit of innovation, but a process and actual products and services that result from that process. Um, And But then, so, you know, take any of these, J&J, Proctor, um, Kimberly Clark, they now all have dedicated innovation groups. They are Mm -hmm. people who either grew up through the company or came in through the outside. That's another big thing. So many of these companies to get to leadership positions, you had to start when you were 12 and when you were 50, you became CEO. Now there's so much cross-pollinization and people bringing different experiences to companies outside to help that innovation. And often the innovation arm of a corporate company is literally essentially either a separate operating company or has different line management up to the CEO. So there there are structural changes. There are competitive things that have happened. Um, People see the money and they follow that. So all those things, excuse me, all those things have an impact on how open corporations are to working with, with innovators. I spend most of my time bringing small companies to large companies, Mm -hmm. because we've worked with them on, here's our female health strategy, or here's what our unmet needs are. And then there's just dozens of companies that could potentially fulfill those needs and solve that problem way more quickly than a product could be developed and launched internally.
0: Right. And so that's helpful, uh, giving that sort of uh, historical perspective. Now, you mentioned before, Dan, about funding. Just let's talk about that real quick. I know I know there's a lot, right? But can can both of you sort of just give an update in this sector how that's changed and and what the forecast is?
2: Boy, I don't know if I can give you a kind of a holistic forecast. Maybe I'll leave that to Rachel. I can only say from my personal experience that um, you know as we have you know started to fundraise and you know for the separate business we raised about a half a million dollars of capital, which is seed funding, not, you know, not not a huge amount. But what we are seeing as we are evaluating and working with folks is that there is a lot of capital that's out there. There's more capital looking to find a home than the other way around. And that's great. But it also means that you may have a lot of, you know, bad love connections, so to speak. So you got to that that's that that's kind of where the market is from a very broad scale. But Rachel, do you want to comment more specifically? I, I, that's You're tapping my knowledge out on the funding side.
1: So I agree with everything you said, Dan. It's a new world. There are more creative sources of capital. There are many funds that are specifically focused, not just on female leaders, but women of color, female sexual health and wellness. The majority of the companies that are started in this space, no surprise, are started by women. And so there are probably more than a dozen at this point who raise their hand and say, this is what I'm looking for. You fit my bill. And those are the places that entrepreneurs can now start. That didn't exist 10 years ago. Um, There are angel funds that are specifically focused on FebTech. There are funds being created. Um, Amboy street ventures is one where they're building a sexual reproductive health investment vehicle to specifically focus on this. So a lot of new sources of capital, Lots more angel money. So what we're seeing now is that some of these successful entrepreneurs, whether they've been successful in this space or have, have changed their direction, are investing money. So you see things like people at you know, Serena Williams having her own venture fund, and there's a number of high-profile companies in the space where they've gotten famous, successful women to put money in. Those are people who have not been angels before, who have not invested in this community. And what we're starting to see, and it's, it's so timely because I'm working on an article about this, is what we've seen in the last six months is an explosion. I like to say women's health is an overnight sensation that's decades, you know, centuries in the making. So we're seeing lots of funding right now um, because these companies have clawed and stretched and been very capital efficient and have reached milestones such that they now work for a a vc model to raise money so there's there are a lot of things happening you know one specific example bloomingdales you know when i started in the space many years ago the idea that bloomingdales would offer sex toys or um lubricants or or vibrators was unheard of this spring they launched that they're taking on four products in my space that's like as big as discovering, you know, that's like a eureka moment yeah. when when something like that happens. So we see money coming in from many new places, you know, traditional VCs. Yes, they are. They're getting more into what medical devices and digital health. And that is huge. I think it's still more difficult um, with some of the more sexual products where we're talking about sexual pleasure or dysfunction. And that just, is uncomfortable um, for lots of people. But we have seen, and I will send this to you, literally dozens of new rounds of funding of companies that had been angel um, angel funded for five, six years, who have built their brands and built their communities and built their reputations and are now of a scale that VCs, even if they're uncomfortable with the space, can see the growth trajectory. So. You know, I used to feel like the the sky was falling, and now you know the horse is out of the barn and galloping at breakneck speed.
0: That that's really great to hear. Um, when it, rain, it rains, it pours, obviously, and it's right. And, and
1: that's in a context of still the a slim percentage of the money is going to these kinds of businesses, but progress is meaningful, and progress is. Um, Encouraging, and so I really want to focus on the upward trajectory. We have a long way to go, but now there's so many more hands trying to push this boulder up the hill, and we're making some real progress.
2: You know, I, if if you don't mind me just adding one point to this, they, about two years ago, we had a client that was a very traditional, large, non-US, um, very male-driven company. Probably the best way to put it. Um, and their chief strategy officer, it's the first time they had a female in the role of chief strategy officer came to us and said, we recognize that femtech is kind of a, a rising tide and we want to develop products based off of our existing portfolios that are really more targeted to women and we don't understand women. And I thought there was a very interesting admission. We spent about a, about a good four or five months working with them, doing ethnography work, building out the profiles, bringing in the right people to kind of immerse them and thinking about where were the opportunities. And there were so many across the portfolio widely ignored. The fact that those are not just an N of one, but it shows very patriarchal traditional companies saying you know what money talks and I'm not sure that they were like well we want to embrace the women's movement they're thinking this is an opportunity for us it's got a high percentage growth potentially we should be there so that I think that's something you started with Rachel is that 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 people do follow the money and the fact that that's growing even if it's a sliver right now is I'm gonna bet I'm gonna go be bullish and go wrong on something. I would say Femtech and the sort of the adjacent areas are are going to still they're gonna explode. They're they're nowhere near their potential yet, in
1: my and, opinion. And one of the things that's made that possible, I think, is that wellness is a more gentle entry point um, into women's health. So if I can talk about women's wellness or sexual wellness or overall wellness, that makes it easier, you know, in the context of a corporation to maybe be in areas that are, are traditionally less comfortable.
0: Great. That's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. That's really great to hear. Now, before we get to questions, I just want to uh, want you folks to share just one thing that entrepreneurs or innovators should know about, you know, how to succeed in the female healthcare space. Rachel?
1: So a couple of things. Be prepared to bang your head against a wall for a long time. It really is a marathon with some sprints in between. Um, Be solving a problem that needs a better solution that people care about. Otherwise, it's just an expensive hobby. One of the things that Dan had mentioned earlier is in many categories, you're getting person to switch from antibiotic one to two or therapeutic regimen here versus that one. In women's health, especially in, in the sexual um, pleasure and other aspects, this could be the first time a person's having a conversation. So you are also, as a company in this space, you need to understand the language. But if I were to say, do one, so you ask for one thing and I've already given you uh, more, but this space is here. Don't start by saying, I wanna be in femtech and calling somebody and saying, what is femtech? there are communities there are podcasts there are organizations there are angel funds figure out where in that space you want to be because femtech is a description it's not a it's not real it's not an industry if you will you have to figure out where in that space you are going to focus and you know you could wind up and say i want a, a hormonal approach that impacts these 17 things that's at least narrower than femtech Femtech really just refers to the industry and I think gives us great nomenclature to have a conversation using similar language, but don't start from scratch. And when people call me, and I'm sure they call you all the time, Dan, I say, let's narrow Femtech. Let's find some companies that you're interested in what they're doing, and we'll start there. But there's a lot of research, and now there are a lot of resources available. So don't start from square one.
0: That's great guidance. Thanks, Rachel. All right, Dan, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna take the one of the things because there was a lot of great advice in there. I grew every single thing you said, and I'm I'm living even today. Earlier this morning, the bang in your head because it's you're gonna have to kiss a lot of frogs to get to a prince, Absolutely. It is, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another cliche, but it's really true. But the one that I wanna double click on is about the unmet need. And you know that's on lean canvases and it's part of the creative problem solving process. But I, I would call myself in this space an accidental innovator. And it's because I was open to listening and understanding what the problem was. And then really going out and, and learning and, and being humble to say I don't know. Um, a real quick aside or connected to this is that you know our product was spawned by as I think I mentioned before a conversation I had with my wife and I said to her Is that really a problem? And it's probably I think those are the words that you used Rachel and my wife said You idiot! Yeah, of course it is. And I said I don't know. I mean you have to explain to me. And uh, you know so she did and I woke up in the middle of the night. Literally, I think two o'clock in the morning and I was at my desk and I was searching and researching. I think I was up for a couple hours and I started sketching and saying, well, what if there was a product like this? What if there was a product like that? The next morning, my wife woke up and my eyes were bloodshot. And she's like, were you up all night? And I said to her, I have an idea. And I, I saw the post-it notes of, is it this? Is it this? Or is it this? And she said, it's none of them. I'm like, tell me why. And we literally were doing you know, as a former market researcher and a moderator, I was like, conducting an interview with my wife. I think it was irritating her at like 730 in the morning. But you know, we, it was really it became an exploration of trying to understand. I think that if you go in and you see there's smoke somewhere, you see there's a potential need, it may not be a great market. But it could be. So you have to be really curious. I went out and talked to I think 20 different people. And I will tell you, it is an awkward conversation to broach you know around FemTech as a man. And particularly if it has to do with like, you know, kind of vaginal care. Most women do not want to talk to but me about vaginal care. Most people
1: don't say, care. Dan, I've been hoping you would come and ask me these questions today. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's, it, it is true. People are not like, no, hmm, that was the first I wanted to talk to you about. Does your life know we're having this conversation?
1: Right. And, yeah, and I have but, a lot of those.
2: <laughs> you have, but you have that conversation. You're very frank. And you, as you discuss that's when you start to understand and that's where product development really emanates from a lot of people are you know look for a report syndicated research and you can find lots of great insights there but I would say you know roll up your sleeves get out there learn ask questions when you find those hot spots don't wait for somebody else to do the dirty work for you you got to get you you got to get your hands dirty you got to get least, out there
1: and at least of the companies in this space were founded as a result of a founder experiencing a problem, searching the world for a solution, finding nothing that was sufficient or met their particular needs, and they create companies around them. You know, one of my favorite stories is a company where a woman was experiencing vaginal dryness and she tried every lubricant on the market, didn't like any of them. And so she hired a PhD and interviewed 300 or 400 women. And that's what I love about being in this space. Who does that? Like, Some people just say, oh, I can't find a product. I guess I'll move on or I I don't care. They don't all start companies. But so much of this is driven by personal experiences and what was a dearth of solutions um, and approaches and, and styles of selling and styles of communicating and educating that they were looking for. So they created them.
2: And if I, if I were to bring it back to like behaviors like across any industry, it comes back to asking great questions, being deeply curious. Like the, the example you gave of someone hiring a PhD to research. I don't know if she was thinking about, hey, how do I do product development here? It might've been like, there may be something here. I'm really curious. It's what drives... Go looking at the, patent, the U.S. patent database to see was there anything created in the early twentieth century that looked like this? And like, it's it's the drive of curiosity. Whether it's for your company, it's for you, it's for you know, or it's you know, even contract work, consulting work. You have to be interested because if you're interested, then other people will be interested in what you're doing. That's it comes. It's the it's a very simple rule, but it's one that's hard to actually follow up on. I think.
0: Yeah, those are great insights, but uh, and we have questions. But I'm going to ask for a few more. But before we get to those, Dan, why don't you just take us through the entrepreneurial process? You you really highlighted it really well there, how the eureka moment came, the aha, and then what happened. You know, just sequence it a little bit, just so people can sort of watch. Uh, you know how it's um, how it's developed, or the timeline of, of how you developed it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So our, our product, the, to give you a kind of quick backdrop on this, we, um, you know, the, the, the problem were, we noticed when uh, you know, my wife and I had a conversation, an awkward conversation, and she said to me, I guess to give a very quick uh, sort of synopsis, our product and the trial that we're gonna be embarking on soon addresses post-coil or post-sex dripping, dripping of fluids. And it's probably not something that you expected to hear on this call today, but that's a product which I didn't think I'd ever be working on either. But be that as it may, uh, my wife said to me, this is a problem. And as I was explaining before, I started to do research and found that it's something that people would blog or talk about on message boards. There was no products available at the time. There were really the solutions that people were using is using a towel, using toilet paper or tissues. It was something that for the most part, that's just not talked about in the wide open spaces. And um, so I started to kind of iterate and build a concept. I put it to the side because I realized I don't have the expertise. I'm not a, you know, a urologist or a gynecologist. I thought like I needed to work with someone who was a subject matter expert. So I put it on the side and a little while later, when I say a little while, couple of years, I was on vacation and serendipitously, I was introduced to my business partner, co-founder now, a gentleman named Dr. Mike Amber, who's right here in New Jersey. He's a urogynecologist. He is an expert in this field. Um, I didn't know anything about what he did. And uh, as I found out what he did for a living, my wife said, hey, tell him about the product concept. And I was a little bit sheepish. So she said, Let me tell you about something that Dan and I have been working on. And uh, so Mike said, this is really interesting. I'd love to know if you wanna collaborate or build a partnership to develop something. So it started there. And I think this is a really important point that I would make to any upstart entrepreneur. And, And I've had this experience on the other side where it didn't work. Partnership, having the right person or people to work with makes all the difference in the world in terms of motivation, complementing with subject, subject matter expertise. We were able to go at this and it took about a solid year after meeting him and saying, I'm open to the idea of actually forming an LLC and starting to develop some exploratory work. Since then, We've been working with product developers. We've worked with a regulatory team to be able to make sure we're on the right regulatory path. We brought in uh, an IP team to be able to make sure that we are following the right patents in the right way so we can build and protect intellectual property. We've been working with a couple of creative partners uh, out of Canada to help us build the right early commercialization strategy. And now several years after uh, the first conversation that my wife and I had, We're now at a point where we are gonna be ready to embark on a clinical trial. Our clinical trial has been approved by an IRB and we're gonna be doing uh, kind of validation with with 30 women to be able to validate that a product works. what we've developed is a product that's very similar-ish to a tampon and some similarity in terms of ergonomics, but the actual product material, the look and feel are different. They're very unique. They're very, very unique and that, Is been really a byproduct of asking thousands of questions. We've interviewed formally and informally, a thousand plus women. Every chance we get, we talk, we learn, and we have probably gone through, I would say 30, 40 iterations of our product. There've been three full prototypes that have been built and each one we're like, that's it. And then we learned, that's not it. And it really comes back to being curious, learning, And now we're at a point where, you know, the product could be successful, it might not. We're pretty confident that you will see this product next year um, in social media and on store shelves, hopefully, eventually. And, uh, you know, it's been a long journey, but it really starts with listening, constantly adapting, and I think not being monolithic and saying, we have to build one thing and that's gonna be it. It never is. It requires a lot of iteration.
0: Wow.
1: So I just want to build on, on something that Dan said, you know, just to give you a frame of reference, when we were running our first female health company, we did 19 focus groups and we did two 800 person quantitative studies. You know, it's, it's asking the questions. It's really listening to the answers and understanding the implications of what people are saying. And sometimes um, there have been plenty of companies that have seen a problem they found a solution and it doesn't catch on for any number of reasons. I mean, we all know that a successful company in the marketplace is dependent on so many different factors, but you're not gonna get anywhere unless you're solving a problem that someone cares about. You know, I always use the example when I'm speaking to students about Warby Parker, cause that seems to be the first company that anyone ever heard of that was innovative. And, you know, I start by asking the question, well, before that company was created, were people unable to get glasses? And the answer is no, people got glasses. What they did is they found pain points that people weren't even aware that existed. They took so long. They were so expensive. They weren't a fashion item. You couldn't try them on at home. You you saw yourself coming and going. So they weren't solving the problem of getting people glasses. They were creating an entirely different and better experience to do something that people were doing. Because I'm one of those believers and we could talk about this all day. I'm not sure there are new problems I think there are new solutions and new ways of looking at things. Um, you know, occasionally, unfortunately, we discover a new disease or something like that. But certainly, in the in the context of consumer products, we have a you know hundreds of challenges, and the the successful companies, at which I hope yours will be one, Dan are providing a better, or different, or faster, or more accessible, or, 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 or something that is an improvement upon what they're currently using mm. um, to solve that problem. And as I said before, in sexual health and women's health, sometimes, and I think this is probably true, Dan, in your case, knowing about the space that you're in, is people have been using makeshift solutions. They don't even know that they were using a solution. They don't know there's a better way to do this, and that's sometimes the heavy lift that a company has to do is educate people that there could be a better way that could make their life better.
2: Yeah, I'll just one point to build on. Sorry, Jim, I'll, I'll throw this out there real quick: is that um, we, as we were developing our product, we saw there was another product being developed, not FDA approved, which is curious. Um, not we and actually went test-
1: wild on social media.
2: It did really well on social media. However, we've tested it. We, we've tested it in our labs and with our teams, and it doesn't work that well. And my, my, one of the things that we quickly learned was actually, and it's there's a, there's a book about the, the first mover disadvantage. It's great if there are other products out there in your space. You actually want there to be because it creates the market, the rising tide. What we want to do is we want to create the best product out there, and you're right. I think there's there's no new problems, but there's awareness about the things Absolutely. that we may not articulate, or we just bite, you know, we we take a stiff upper lip, you know, we we you know we grin and bear it. And I think that through, you know, you go back to the example of Viagra. A lot of men experience erectile dysfunction. They just said it's not something I'm going to talk about. It's not a big enough problem that I'm going to tell anybody about this. And that's the thing is that we expect more. We we demand more. And that's, that's where the product developer really comes in. And and again, maybe the product developer has never been the right name for it to begin with. You know, maybe it's, it's a little bit different. Product developer means it's product first. I think it's a, a people problem solver, which really is what it's about. Product is one of the things, but there may be other aspects that you're developing at the end of the day.
1: I worked with this brilliant uh, person at J&J, and... Um, Going back to the corporate innovation, one of the reasons that it has been difficult is because if you're not successful in a corporation, it impacts your career. So the idea that innovation, the the effort in and of itself is worthy, even if you fail, and that if you fail, you can still get promoted is important. And the reason I mentioned that, because you're talking about insights, is this manager used to start every meeting by talking about the insight that they were responding to. Instead of saying, we're here to discuss the new tampon they would start with we're here to discuss this problem that women have been complaining about or this lack of confidence or what whatever is the word but the meaning wasn't about the product it was about the insight to which the product was a solution and I think that's a, an interesting way to think about it to make sure that you're always starting with your ultimate user
0: that that's great you could, this is like a master class and help <laughs> it's really great i think you've answered most of the questions actually so someone this is a minor question but someone said why don't you just use women health instead of femtech or femhealth is there is there a nomenclature that is changing or or how do you view that rachel
1: well so hi ben hi to benny who asked the question and um, benny's a great example of what's happened with femtech he's now running the second congress on femtech in tel aviv in february Uh, 2022. I hope I got that right, Benny. Um, The first one was in 2019. Hundreds of people attended. He's now, you know, riding the wave. There's so much interest. So for me, at least gives you a starting point. Is it the whole, you know, the whole landscape? No. Is women's health, the whole landscape? Certainly not, because it doesn't include people who were, you know, there people who are non-binary, people who, for whom that description doesn't, fit, but we need a place to start, and without that, we can't have the conversation. So for me, FEMtech, sex tech, women's health, sexual and reproductive health, it's all great if it creates a conversation on solving problems and raising money and you know, building successful companies. That's my and there are lots of people who would disagree with me, but I feel if you don't even have a vocabulary, how are you to have a conversation?
0: Sure, sure. One last question, and this could relate to women's health or, or not, you know, how do you find the right employees or how do you find the right team or partners, right? And Dan, you, I think you got lucky maybe. I mean, um, but is there, do things change when you're in this space? I mean, that's probably a valid sort of question too, to find the right people, right? It's already hard, um, you know, super hard to find the right people, but are there any tips you can give our entrepreneurs
2: Maybe I should be looking for tips from you guys. I'll tell you, my, my business partner is amazing and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't ask for a better person to work with. Um, what's challenging is, is you know, there, there are people that we worked with and we've said, you know, ah, it didn't work out. And I, I think that you can interview and screen all you want. Um, some of it is about personality fit. Um, obviously like anything else, like, it's, knowing their references, what's their past track record? Um, are they really interested in what you're doing versus the transaction? Um, that I think is really important. If people are passionate about it and working with you, then those are probably gonna be the right kind of people as long as they have the, the complementary skills. But uh, it, it is, uh, building a team has been, has been a learning process for us, I, I'll be very candid and um, you, you know, what I would say if there's any one takeaway that, that I've walked away with so far from this experience is it's, it's hard to build a profile in your mind of who the right person is. You have to remain open. Um, and what I mean, you know, demographically, um, geographically, personality-wise, the people who have worked best with us, I might not have predicted. So you have to remain open and but also have a clear still have a clear sort of vision of what you're looking for and go to their motivation. Like, why are they doing this? Is it about only cash or is it because, hey, I want to work with with great people. And we really love what you're doing. That's that's a that's a good selling point. Yeah,
1: me- one of the things that you see in this space is people truly have a passion for making an impact on the world. Um, while simultaneously building a business. One of the things that we didn't mention is so many of these companies have a component that has, you know, a buy one, take one or give back or provide their products for free for people in developing countries. So I do think it attracts people um, who have a passion for having an impact. Uh, That's and cool. I find, and having done a fair amount of hiring in this space we would start with the basic question. You know, we talk about vaginas, we talk about vulvas, we talk about the difference between, you know, clitoral and vaginal orgasm. If that's uncomfortable, that's okay. But this might not be a place for you. So, you know, uh, then the podcast that we're doing, and my co-host is an obstetrician gynecologist, um, Business of the V, little shout out if anyone's interested, um, is we often are helping people understand the language of this space. So I agree with everything Dan said, there are just people who this isn't comfortable for. You know, I didn't necessarily know that it was gonna be comfortable for me and turns out I could talk about this as easy as I could talk about a fruit salad or, you know, reading a different book. Um, But I do like the passion. And I think that's true for any industry and any startup. You want people who really care that this is gonna matter that they really care that this is going to be successful. And I found having, you know, worked now for a couple of decades that really using your personal networks and the connections of your connections and your, the networks of your connections um, to get people who can give you a sense of someone's work ethic, problem solving ability, and character are really critical.
0: Uh, That's great guidance. We're running out of time here, but I want to, speaking of shout outs, I want to give a shout out to Esther Cerdin who, uh, Asked the question about being able to promote and advertise on Facebook and social media in general uh, with, with sexual, you know, uh, or women's health products has been challenged in the past. Can you comment on that real quick?
1: Yeah. So this was, you know, when we were building our company, I called this the Fighting City Hall strategy. We went to a hundred outlets, 95 said no. Um, and so and that was cable network, radio. Um, online. And so we said, well, if we can't buy media, we're going to earn it. So we built a PR campaign to drive the growth of the company around the disparity between men and women's advertising. And so many companies today have done different versions of that. So whether it's, you know, Laura DiCarlo, who got her award taken away at CES and then reinstated, um, um, people are using the pushback and the systemic discomfort uh, to build things. And I, I'd written a little bit to um, Esther uh, in the Q&A, but Facebook is a constantly moving target. And my experience, my advice would be do not only rely on Facebook. It, it would be easier, it would be great, especially if you're um, trying to reach the demos who seem to gravitate towards uh, Facebook. But just to give you a very concrete example, when you look at erectile dysfunction ads, which you see all the time, on Facebook, uh, that is evaluated through a family planning algorithm, which is just ironic, in my opinion, because people using Viagra tend to be people who who are older and have heart conditions or are using it for performance enhancement. But in any case, that is the way that it's evaluated. When you see anything around sex or breastfeeding or vaginas or whatever it is, it is tagged as too sexual in nature. And one of my favorite examples is a a company um, had tried to get an add on around vaginal dryness Mm -hmm. and Facebook's answer was it's too sexual in nature. And my answer was do Dan's example, ask 10 people who have suffered from vaginal dryness and see if too sexual in nature is on the top hundred of the, the, the descriptors they use. So it's a constantly moving target. um, and but many companies have figured out workarounds by eliminating some of those buzzwords or the visuals that will catch the attention um, of the Facebook algorithm for women's health the way it's currently designed.
2: There, there is a bit of a chastity police issue and we, we found exact you, you learned this much before much earlier than we did but we found that certain words like vagina or penis show up, in an ad or something on Facebook, immediately they think it's pornography, which it's not. And it's not, It's uh, there, there is a, a hopefully there'll be a movement away, a, a bit more of a balanced approach, um, who knows. I, there was recently a, a, uh, an article that was very intriguing about why Apple, when you use their weather app, will show the number of 68 or 70 for the temperature but never the number 69. Now it became a question, ah! is that, not making this up. I very, love
1: that, that's mi- so ridiculous. It whether it's mythological
2: or not, the, the response from their public relations was that that um, it's a conversion issue because of Celsius, which sounds a bit speechy. Oh yes,
1: I'm sure that's what it is. So
2: <laughs> even little things, is like, come on, let's grow up, let's be adult, let's be less comfortable with graphic violence that's being shown and be okay with the human body. I, I think that we have to mature a little bit and will we get there? I don't know. This is, that's a whole nother discussion for Jim's next episode. But I think that this is something that we will continue to face if you're in femtech women's health, men's health for that matter you're going to come across it. Yeah, Build You had it.
1: asked us for, you know, a quote or a saying, and this speaks directly to one of the ones that I'd like, speaks directly to this feeling of being uncomfortable. And it's from Brene Brown from her book, Daring Greatly. Um, and if you haven't seen her Netflix, show it's it's worth it. <laughs> so she says, it's uncomfortable to challenge the status quo. It's uncomfortable to resist the urge to settle. When you identify the discomfort, you found the place where a leader is needed. If you're not uncomfortable in your work as a leader, it's almost certain you're not reaching your potential as a leader. And so I translated that if if I'm not feeling discomfort every day, I'm not trying hard enough. And so instead of that feeling being a barrier, it's now a motivator. So yeah, this doesn't feel that good. I could really be on the right track. And I think that speaks to the whole industry. We have to sort of, our society, we have to figure out um, better ways because we have big problems, many of which are the result of our inability to have conversations or educate people um, around sexuality, pleasure, pain, fill in the blank.
0: Thank you, Rachel. That's a great quote, great analogy. Uh, Dan, did you want to add to that your uh, poem? I'll I'll take one that goes back almost 70 years. It's a guy named Alex Osborne.
2: Alex Osborne is one of the kind of innovators of creative problem solving, got two gentlemen, Osborne and Parnes, and he had a great quote. I'm going to paraphrase it. It's something like this, that it's easier to tame a wild idea than it is to invigorate one which is really mild in the first place. And this is kind of the thing for product developers, go big, okay. be, go, be really provocative. We don't need more incremental ideas. They're fine, you can have them, but you need to sometimes if get a workable idea, you gotta really push yourself out there. And I, I think that, that's something I always challenge myself is how do we really provoke? How do we push this further outside of where we ever expect it to go? That's, if you wanna do something big, you gotta start big. Even if it seems impossible, impossible becomes viable when you go through the pragmatic steps.
0: That sounds great. That's really, both of those were excellent. Guys, thank you so much for coming together today. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.